The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This episode is a compliment to Ritual and Practice for the Urban Homestead, a retreat I'm co-leading with my partner, Ruben Anderson, this fall 2018 at Hollyhock Lifelong Learning Center on Cortez Island. More on that at the end of the show. Today, my guest is Patty Elledge, a trauma healing specialist and somatic experiencing practitioner with a private practice in Asheville, North Carolina. She's my supervisor and my mentor, and uh, I have long believed that everyone should have access to Patty as their mentor. So in this conversation, I'm asking Patty to explain what attachment is, what the different attachment styles look like in babies and how that translates in adult behavior, the role of evolutionary biology in our attachment systems, and how we can heal the attachment wounds that we all carry in a world that is so high stress and full of persistent precarity. I connected with Patty online. As I said, she was at home in Asheville, North Carolina. So Patty, what identities do you lead with? Hi, Carmen. It's so nice to be with you. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. Um, you know, I, I'm a mature woman. I've been a therapist over 41 years. So really, I consider myself the identity I lead with right now is as elder and um, somewhat of a mentor for the younger therapists coming up through the ranks and developing their own programs. So one of the main, it changed about three years ago, but one of my main uh, identities I realized was as elder and mentor. So, mm-hmm. and, and I would say that there's another one, a hidden one that I don't tell everybody, but I uh, practice out of my home office now, which is an old log cabin in the woods. And so I, I also lead as kind of the um, crazed healer, the wild healer woman in the woods. Because <laughs> people come up to my house and it's surrounded by the wilderness and, and deep woods and a lot of flowers, a lot of growth. And then you come in. So it really, you know, I've, I've kind of, secretly been crafting that the last I'd say five years oh, I, I love it. and where are you located geographically I'm in Asheville North Carolina which is in the Blue Ridge Mountains so I'm I'm on Sunset Mountain in Asheville out just outside of Asheville I have black bear and wild turkey and uh, coyotes and bobcats we've all been sighting a lot of these all over so mm, I, I can the picture is very vivid <laughs> I yeah. love it thank you yeah. good can you tell us a bit about uh, the work you do as a trauma therapist yeah um, I have been a therapist for more than 40 years but about 20 years ago I heard about Peter Levine's work and Peter has been honored by the International Body Psychotherapy Association as um, kind of the pioneer who really landed that trauma is in the body and in the nervous system rather than the mind. And so it's not like talk therapy can rectify all trauma that we really get log jammed in the body. And so 
Um, my background is in neurobiology and in application of that therapeutically, um, working with the fight, flight, freeze mechanism. Mm -hmm. And then how the um, psyche wraps around that or is constricted by that. So that's my, uh, my background as a trauma therapist. Hmm. And what were you, what, how would you frame the work you were doing before you discovered this important somatic piece? What was your therapy like then? Yeah, I had been a, a child family therapist for a long time. I had spent many, many years studying neuroscience from much more of a top-down viewpoint, but the neocortex. So I, look, I knew a lot about language and cognitive processing. And uh, I worked with children who had been born or because of some event had had a, some kind of a, a developmental trauma or uh, developmental eruption or, or um, a stopping in, in the development. So I worked with children and families really on the floor, uh, babies, toddlers, on up, helping parents um, cope with this child that they didn't expect to have, kind of the at-risk child. And so during that time, my specialty, again, was very much social, pragmatic, and I was oriented a lot to Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory. At the time, we called it the theory, but, um, you know, and attachment, but we we're working with it to facilitate growth and development and communication in a child mm -hmm. and helping parents accept who they were rearing in their home and the differences in their mind. And so my background was really with children and families. And because of that, you know, later I did become an attachment therapist, but I feel like I, I took a lot of data in looking at, a lot of different families, how they raise kids, their gifts, the broad range of differences between families and priorities and strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And I did see the impact of child rearing, the impact on children. And certainly I worked with uh, indigent families, families that, you know, were uh, in social structures of child protective services and things like that. So I also saw trauma early on uh, and the effects on the developing mind mm. back then. Yeah. Can you define for listeners for whom attachment or I would also want to uh, highlight poly, the, the polyvagal system, or the, what yeah. was called the polyvagal theory uh, yeah. back then. Can you define those terms and just paint a picture a bit of how, what they are and how they relate to each other? Yeah, thanks, Carmen. Um, the attachment theory, um, you know, there are a couple of ways that we can look at attachment. In Buddhism, you know, we, we want to not have attachment to different things. We're not talking about that kind of term. We're really talking about something that nowadays we look at as we're hardwired to love and bond. We are hardwired to attach to others. And uh, because we're in the mammal family, all mammals have that same thing. We're, we're hardwired in the same ways uh, in the heart and lungs um, to really go toward 
someone that we trust and lean on and collaborate and cooperate. We look at the great wolves and how they work together as, you know, an amazing hunting pack and they collaborate and work together for the good of all and humans at the, you know, at the top level of our functioning, we're hardwired really to collaborate and cooperate and um, attachment has that, um, wisdom behind it. So it's really when babies are born, babies naturally have this force of gazing out at the world um, and attaching whether they're nursing or being held or they've already been in the mother's womb. They can hear and feel. Literally, there's a lot of, of evidence that attachment starts in utero because we're so hardwired for it that there's a greater propensity when the baby's born that they orient to the sound of even the father or the other caregiver, like if it's two women, but the baby, the infant orients to the voice of those individuals that they've been around. And in in the way that you and I work with attachment, Carmen, the way that you do therapeutically or I do, we're aware that secure attachment is tremendously important in the development of the human. And if you don't have secure attachment, there are other forms called insecure that relates to the way a parent is uh, responding and attuning or misattuning to the infant's cries and attempts to get their needs met. And because of that, it sets up a dynamic relationally that lasts, seems to last over the lifespan. But I don't want to say that in a, um, you know, in a, a doomsday way that we can all, because we're hardwired for healthy attachment, we can figure out ways to heal even the earliest, most difficult attachment wounds. We can heal them over the lifespan by choosing and selecting healthy life choices and by learning about secure attachment. So I hope that that, I, I know that's kind of wordy. I don't know if that was clear. Yeah, it is clear. And in terms of uh, the polyvagal system, I wonder if you can help those who, who might already, you know, it's kind of like listeners, everyone, we'll all just feel our feet and feel our seat because we might already feel like, oh, I don't know that I had that uh, feeling of, of attunement, you know, that my needs were met then or now. And um, maybe you could then uh, talk a bit more about the polyvagal system and how um, on the one hand we choose, but on the other hand, there's systems in the body that make it very difficult, but we can, it's almost like going to the gym. We can get into good therapeutic relationships and build up the system in our body that helps us attach in a more healthy way. Can you, can you bring that in a bit? Yeah, I love it. That's beautiful, Carmen. Absolutely. Um, so the, the way that we're hardwired, we now call it the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve, but there's a whole conglomeration of subnerves that are coming in. So it's a whole... Uh, functional uh, aspect of our neurobiology and physiology. And uh, we are hardwired for survival. And that's part of the polyvagal, the dorsal vagal, the old primitive vagus nerve. So we're um, hardwired to sometimes in overwhelm go into what we call immobility freeze, for instance. And that is a biologically functional aspect 
of the nervous system that helps protect us and helps um, anesthetize us literally through body neurochemistry. If, for instance, something happens, God forbid, our arm gets cut off or something like that, but it's we're pumping, and that's part of the dorsal vagal, as well as we have a more mature vagus nerve called the ventral vagal that evolved during evolutionary biology on planet Earth. When mammals appeared, there appeared to be a branching off of the vagus nerve into a much more mature, what we call the mature mammalian vagus that hardwires around the heart, the lungs, the voice and throat, the eyes and face and ears. And so we have this whole other way of communicating and connecting with one another. And that evolved, that didn't appear on earth in reptiles and it didn't appear in amphibians or birds. So it evolved when uh, mammals got on earth. And that's a beautiful piece of history in terms of deep ecology um, and eco-philosophy. We are part of the earth. And part of what I know our topic today is going to be how separated we've become from our earth and from our bodies. And of course, my message, I think my whole life has been oriented toward healing our relationship with ourselves and with one another and our bodies and how to come back into more embodiment. So I know that we'll be talking probably off and on, kind of winding off and on about the polyvagal system. And maybe I'll even give you a couple of articles that you could post with this talk if you want to, you know, just so people could begin to think about it and look at it. But I think it's heartening for your listeners just to know that you're hardwired to survive. We hear a lot about fight and flight. Uh, for a long time, we heard nothing about freeze. When I went through school, when I went through university, they did not even include the freeze in the textbooks. And I took a lot on biology back then mm-hmm. and, and neurology, but they excluded that. And it wasn't until later that, you know, really Peter Levine saying, hey, trauma, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder is the immobility response stuck. Mm-hmm. in a freeze in the body. Mm-hmm. So. And now we're hearing so much more about, um, yeah, the, the comfort system, the tendon of befriend, the, the, the wired to survive in tribe and Beautiful. collaborate. And, 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 and so this is what I find, as you say, so heartening and hopeful about attachment. Can you talk about the insecure attachment styles versus yeah. the secure attachment style? And you work mm-hmm. so much with babies. And when I've learned from you, I, you know, we've watched lots of videos of, of um, babies' facial expressions, like without sound and just like noticing what their bodies are doing. And it's been yeah. so fascinating for me to sort of distribute that to, oh, adults still do those basic movements, yeah. of like, you know, the, the kind of dog and you know trying to get away that kind of thing so yeah can you talk about the different attachment styles what they look like in babies and then Mm -hmm. how that translates to adult behavior yeah and it's still like the love of my life is really how attachment evolves I can see you know when you ask that question my you know my own body just gets so excited my face brightens up because I am thinking about the beautiful synchrony that really can happen insecure attachment, if there's enough safety, safety is the bottom, bottom law 
but between a parent or a caregiver and an infant, uh, the little infant sleeps a lot, then they wake up and they nurse, they cry some. Uh, and a lot of, of attachment, secure attachment is related to how quickly do you figure out how to soothe your baby? Uh, so it's promptness and also attunement. So how quickly do you figure that out? And if the baby's crying and beginning to connect, how quickly can you soothe and come into connection with the baby? Because that baby's brain is an experience-based brain. So the baby is going to develop their whole regulation of physiology in close connection with the parent. So secure attachment, I'll just name some of the attributes, but it's predictability and reliability, being safe, being non-threatening, being positive, uh, uh, kind of uh, connecting in a way that shows that the adult has enough presence um, and that they're not preoccupied with a thousand other details, but when they're with the baby, they're actually there to interact. Um, also welcoming and affection. We know that skin-to-skin -skin contact is very important when we develop secure attachment. We want a lot of belly time. They call it kangaroo parenting now, you know, but why would we call it kangaroo? We should call it human human parenting you know we we are that's how what you know in the old ways you know you wore the baby you just put the baby on you and you just went out in the fields you did what you did mm -hmm. <laughs> because that baby needed to be near you they needed to nurse with you and then you needed to tend the fields or whatever so the secure attachment style is developed through a lot of these kind of positive uh, interactive uh, finely tuned like a dance, like a, uh, an amazing synchrony of movement. Uh, in early development, secure attachment is not really about ABCs. It's not about knowing numbers. It has nothing to do with tying shoes. It has everything to do with the right hemisphere and the to the baby's right hemisphere. Attunement, which is a nonverbal world. It's much more in spatial. Uh, emotional regulation. So that's how the secure attachment evolves. And when we know, when, when, when we see a first grader with secure attachment, that little boy or girl or in-betweener, whatever that child is, that child walks up to the classroom. They may tear up a little bit to separate that first time from mom or dad. They may look back and have some tentativeness but there's such a greater robustness of vitality and resiliency when that child enters the classroom than a child who has insecure attachment. And those listeners, if you are feeling kind of a gripping in your tummy because of your own child that you've seen or because of, um, you know, maybe your own experiences as a first grader. I just want to bring compassion again and say, you know, I'm a therapist. I'm well aware that this thing called secure attachment doesn't happen everywhere. In fact, we think it's about 45% of the population and actually may be on the decline because of the stress of the world and so many parents having to work to keep up and pay bills. But I uh, want to bring compassion and also some you know heartening news that again the attachment 
wound if we, you know, we're going to talk maybe a little bit about insecure attachment, but it, having an attachment wound doesn't mean that you've got that stamped on your forehead for the rest of your life. Yes, you're going to have tendencies and trends, but also, like I said before, with healthy life choices, you really can move out of that and move on to back to developing secure attachment. I want to make sure that we circle back to the healthy life choices. I don't want to yeah. stop your flow with the um, description, but I want to seed that. Okay, I'm going to sure. ask you about that again later. So what are, when that doesn't happen, I, I, I have to confess, I'm astonished by the 50% and 45% occurrence of secure attachment. Um, data. Yeah. And I always wonder who were the, who was the, who exactly was the, um, who were the case studies for this? Because uh -huh. what world, what world is that? I would like to know yeah. because I, I'm astonished by that. And, and, uh, I, I think it has to be much lower. I, however, I mean, yeah. I, I recognize that's the data that we have, but I definitely yeah. wonder, you know, what socioeconomic echelon are they studying? You know, mm -hmm. how diverse is that population? Because those control groups, I would just love to know. Even, even mm -hmm. none of us in the last hundred years have come through a, a, a genetic line where somebody didn't go to war and come back pretty screwed up. So I, you know, just the epigenetics of it, I, I, I'm astonished by that all the time. So I just, anybody else who's kind of wondering like, who are these secure people? I wonder that too. Apparently mm -hmm. they've done studies. But, yeah. But, um, if you could talk a bit about what the insecure attachment um, dynamics look like, you know, yeah, it's not absolutely. Abusive, right. It's not, it doesn't have to be extreme. So I would love mm -hmm. to hear what, what, how those get set up. Yeah, they, um, you know, way back, I think it was uh, Mary Main and Mary Ainsworth and John Bowlby. These are kind of the early researchers. John Bowlby certainly is the father of the field of attachment. He coined the term. But um, there were these research studies with babies called the strange studies in which they put on a videotape and they'd uh, uh, record it and then analyze the baby's reactions. And the idea was the room had some toys and then the parent would walk in, usually the mom carrying an 18 month old would um, look at a few toys and then would be cued, please leave the room for a few moments. So the mom uh, would put down the baby, they'd walk to the door, they'd close the door and walk out. Every single baby, regardless of the pattern of attachment, would become distressed at the loss of the mother because it was a strange room. And then the idea isn't whether the baby becomes distressed at that moment. The baby, the, the real evidence or the interesting uh, telling points are what happens upon reunion with the parent. When, you know, the parent is cute, okay, go back in the room and go right back to your baby. So the, they're all told the same thing, go back to your baby uh, in secure attachment, the mother, usually what research was with a, a mother, female parent, but she would walk back in the room and walk toward the child. With secure attachment, the baby reaches up, is crying, holds on to the mother, and is soothed and quieted fairly quickly, and then resumes interest in the toys and in the room. So the baby will point then after they're holding on to the parent's neck or arms, 
they will point to other things in the room. Even though they have little tears on their cheeks, it looks like they're soothed so that their nervous systems are returned to quiet and they can then resume exploration. And that's very important in child development because children's play is their work. It's how they interact with the world, whether they're climbing on stairs, stacking blocks, pulling you know, things apart. But they want, we want that baby to feel safe enough to engage in the environment again. That's what it's all about. And in insecure attachment, we, uh, when they were doing the studies, they saw, I'll just go kind of Carmen one by one. They're going to be three insecure styles. I'll introduce briefly. Uh, the first style, not in any order, but the first style we'll call an avoidant pattern so that when the parent walked back in, the baby who was distressed and was crying, the parent will go to that baby, but the baby may look away or show not a lot of interest in the reunion, which is curious. If that's their mom or, you know, their parent, that is curious. So they're not distressed upon seeing her. They just don't go to her for consolation. The baby may walk over to a toy. In fact, when the parent sits down, the baby, in fact, may just walk over to a, parent, to a toy, but show no connection. That indicates that that parent has not been very helpful or useful to the baby and that they haven't had probably the emo the, uh, their own, the parent herself has not had enough of their own child rearing experiences as a youngster to really know about soothing. And they may in fact be raising the child to be more independent and more self-reliant and isolate. So the avoidance style has more to do with saying you're fine and kind of pushing the baby away or walking away with disinterest or showing harsh eyebrows when the baby's crying and seeking soothing, the parent may show harsh eyebrows so that the baby can't really come to the parent the parent's not effective. And again, I don't mean to have it be a judgment. It's really, we call it the contagion of attachment style, mm. that um, these, these styles tend to be passed down uh, generation to generation. And Carmen, as you and I know, in the trainings that you and I have participated in together, how important it is for us to be naming and working with generational trauma. And I know that you interview a lot of people that are in, actively in the field of, you know, uh, intergenerational healing. And certainly the work I teach and the work I do has aspects of that very mm -hmm. much. I also but, just like to, yeah. because, you know, as a recovering avoidant myself, <laughs> you're mentioning the harsh eyebrows. And I, and I want to really, again, extend compassion to listeners who, who are having mm -hmm. little flashbacks in their mind or seeing their father's or mother's face right now, <laughs> that sort of thing going, oh, because you may not have been neglected, but there may have been this sort of atmospheric, critical, 
um, energy there. And when you hear what some of the signs are, then you suddenly, it's like, bing, bing, bing in your mind. And so I just want to acknowledge that like I got a little, I felt contraction and a bit of redness and warming at the eyes and some tearing and more energy in my nose as I'm just like, "Uh uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. Okay. But I love to hear you say that as a recovering avoidant. I love to hear you say that it's coming up to your eyes and nose and Mm -hmm. your throat and that you're warming with it because that's your healing Mm -hmm. that see that's your healthy attachment of saying me too that that's happened and I'm a recovering avoidant and the energy is coming up to your nose and eyes and throat so I just congratulate you that you know I have a little bit of the avoidant and and, uh, thank God I had some secure but I have some of that avoidant too and so I have a lot of compassion for all the styles i dug in so deeply into all of it that I've spent, I feel like five years at a time kind of looking at each of the styles that I have mm-hmm. as I keep growing in the secure, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, the yeah. avoidant, you know, when you said it was an abject neglect. Yeah. And what I call it, Carmen is emotional neglect. Mm-hmm. And that kind of makes us teary in a way that really hits to the core of it that there wasn't a uh, compassion or capacity for emotional regulation. Although in a a household uh, that's being, you know, primarily avoidant dominated uh, child rearing strategies, there can be a real, it it can be a real high profile family with people working. There can be really great food on the table and a beautiful surrounding there can be an abundance of after uh, school activities. However, that whole little quadrant about emotional presence and attunement and warmth is what heals the person who was raised with avoidant. They know that their primary need is to have that emotional need met. Mm-hmm. And now's a good time, Carmen, since you mentioned your own experience, just to remember that nobody has to be in secure behaviors. We're not asking people to, and actually nobody is 90% of all these behaviors of the time. We're talking really that secure attachment can develop with about 30, 32% onwards, that once you get to a certain level, of 30, 32% of emotional attunement or presence, you know you're in that green zone, you're, you're in that green light, you know, of, of, okay, I'm moving toward that. If I, if with my child, I am attuning to their needs 30% of the time, and you look at it over a day, you realize, okay, a couple of times I was really present, even though I kind of harshly dismissed them and said, come on, get, get dressed and get in the car right now. You know, that'd be kind of something, (laughs) that tone of voice, you know, is sort of something that a person would hear or say if they have the avoidance style, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. a little bit like the sergeant, you know, like. (laughs) Yeah. And that's um, Dr. Alan Shore. He has, there's a great video of him on psycholive.org. I think it is. And it's called the good enough mother. And it's going to help all of us parents who are like feeling rising tension in our shoulders and like clutching that it's like, oh, but it's so busy in my life and I've got all these Mm -hmm. things. And, and, um, and so I appreciate you, you bringing that in. And also I wanted to, um, uh, circle, uh, 
back just a little bit to um, the it's not just that the, the the good enough parenting present it's 30 percent of the time that sort of thing but one of the other ways that a person who who sometimes i find that folks with an avoidant attachment style don't self-identify that way because as you said there's food on the table my parents took me to hockey you know they came to my that sort of thing but one thing that um you and um our teacher diane Poole heller will often say is that if the parents eyebrows and face only light up for the child really around tasking like i'm teaching you how to do something or you are doing a performance-based activity and that's how that's kind of our main source of connection then then that's not the emotional nurturance and and that's where that emotional neglect can also come in and and that's so difficult i think for people as adults who are like not connecting emotionally in relationship or it's you know there's disconnect and they can't figure it out because they're doing all the right things because they're living through the doing because tasking was the only source of connection. So I, I just wanted to kind of bring that up too, because when you say it's like emotional neglect, it's hard to relate to that when there were happy faces right. and lots of events. Right. <laughs> and you seem like you should be happy. You know? I have a perfect example of, you know, a family that I saw many years ago and um, interestingly enough, both of the children I saw from the family had some language learning difficulties, but I really think it was related to not enough of that kind of juicy memory connection that feeds uh, the developing mind and brain literally in the hippocampus. But both of these boys were impeded. But I'll tell you that those parents were on the moment that ch those children woke up in the morning, they were on it, homework, they had to pack their own meals, then they had to get to school, then they were immediately, you know, brought in to various kinds of activities, and they'd come to me twice a week for um, uh, skill-based learning, language learning skills, but I, I could feel the dearth. These little guys had this vacant eyes. They, they were really dissociated because there wasn't enough nurture or let down. And, uh, you know, if you look at the family on the outside, there was a lot of richness, but on the inside in that child's experience, um, they weren't being seen and they were not being held. And so I was really helping the family shift gears at some of the life choices, you know, saying we need on Friday night, no activities. And that's pizza night. You know, that was what I'd call it, you know, pizza game night. So every other Friday, one would be game night and pizza where the family would play a game together. And then the other night, you know, the next Friday would be another meal, favorite meal of the children, but movie time together on the couch. So you're piled on like puppy pile. But I, I said, you've got to do this. This can't go on. These boys are not thriving. And they looked um, literally, you know, they were the perfect example, both Parents were high profile at the time, you know, doing a lot of good things in the world, but uh, very, very kind of the resonance of neglect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there can be like very loving, caring, you know, busy, attentive, att but attentive is different from attuned. 
That's right. That's like a true. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So I've, I, of course I have a bias here. So I, I know we spend more time on this. Than- <laughs> okay. Sorry. It's Carry fun. on with your flow oh, together in secure style. Sure. The next one I'll talk about, um, back to the strange study. So the mom and the baby are in the room 18 months and the mom is cued to please go out of the room for a moment. They go out of the room, but when they are reunited, they come back in, the baby's crying as all the babies are, but the baby runs to the mom and clings and actually can't be soothed. The baby's clinging to the mother. The mother's doing her best and kind of laughing and joking and you know, jostling the baby around, trying to get things regulated, but the baby may strike the mother. The baby appears to be mad at the mother and they cannot relax. They cannot let down with reuniting. This occurs, Carmen, when it's called the anxious ambivalent or preoccupied style. This occurs when the parent has had just too many things on their mind to distract them, but they are very attuned at times emotionally to the baby, but it's less than 30% of the time. So the baby is used to, they, they get the good stuff and then it's gone. And the baby more and more finds him or herself seeking out connection just to stabilize. If they had just a little bit more, they could stabilize. But you can imagine when a parent is very preoccupied, maybe with a um, drug-addicted partner and uh, not enough money in the house, the parent, the mother herself will just keep saying the mother could be the dad. But the mother herself may feel a lot of worry and concern. She may burst into tears and come to the baby who she really loves, but can't quite regulate. The mom can't regulate herself or the father himself, turns to the baby, interacts really intensely with a lot of love, but not in a soothing, regulating, attuned way, kind of intensity, and then gets distracted again by yet another phone call or yet another, you know, checkbook disaster, you know, that these things happen in a family and then that coming and going doesn't provide enough predictability for the child to relax in the relational field. And so the baby actually gets more anxious and angry. And it's very natural if you think about it, why the baby'd want to bonk the parent over the head upon reunion, like you're back here, take this, boom. You know, I don't want you to leave anymore. Be here, be with me now, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like Ram Dass's statement, you know, be here now. Mm-hmm. But wanting that presence and wanting a bit more continuity and, and regularity. So that's what happens with that other second insecure style. And it sets up more dysregulation in the nervous system over time. So these people tend to have... Uh, poorer boundaries, but also uh, some anxiety, maybe even leading to some panic attacks as they grow up through the years. Um, they tend to look more clingy. They, they want love. They really desire. All the styles want love, without a doubt, every single style that we're talking about. We're not talking about pathological problems here. We're not even talking about it anymore as a dysfunction, guys you know, listeners, we're really talking about it as part of the human condition of uh, being on planet Earth. The joke's on us, you know, that 
you know, but we've got this situation in which we're hardwired both for survival as well as love and bonding. And um, it's no longer a simple society. We're not, you know, on planet Earth, it's no longer simple. And so we've got more of that nervous system, like the anxious ambivalent, will have more of the fight reaction relationally, but they also want deeply to connect and to actually they many times they want to merge as adults because they just want to feel being held enough so that they relax. Mm-hmm. And but what you say about it, it's that I love that you're really highlighting it's about reunion. It's not yeah. necessarily about the separation. It's about what happens in the reunion because that, you know, as adults, that uh, reunion, the, the, the great phrase that was used in, in um, the trainings I was in with you was that the, for the person with an anxious style, even having their needs met can actually trigger the chronic expectation of them not being met or of the next abandonment or of the next thing. So they want love, but their nervous system will not allow them. You're calling it let down, meaning just like a bit of a wash away, being able to relax into it. Their nervous system won't let them because it's like, okay, I'm getting what I want now, but you're going to take it away in a little bit and, and I'm irritated. Or, or you were, you've come into the room and I was regulated, but as soon as you come in, I kind of leave myself to go to you because I'm so oriented towards when am I going to get my next attunement cookie, you know, like my next piece, right? I want my next little hit, which is what I need to thrive. And now you're not giving me back to me. You're not Mm -hmm. paying attention and I'm pissed at you. So I want Mm -hmm. you, but I'm irritated with you at the same time. It's just such a paradox. And it makes me very paradox when I think about this, because of course, this is the the relational field that I know many listeners already know, but Ruben's a bit more anxious and I'm a bit more avoidant. And so as I, as we've worked very in a very focused, devoted, uh, dedicated way for a few years to figure out how to yeah. soothe each other and how to be compassionate. Beautiful it's, it's so painful for me to think about him not being able to let down and relax. And yeah. It's sad to- for the, yeah, because the avoidance style can settle down, you know, and in, in fact, with separating, they do settle down really easily. They're used to uh, auto-regulating, but I love your article. I want to say how often I, Uh, send it to couples that are in that kind of pattern Mm. of the opposite pattern. And I just love the article. I love what you said about it. It was so transparent and Mm. so darn right on. I mean, it's a fabulous. (laughs) Thank you. We'll link to that in the show notes, but yeah, very very confessional article. (laughs) I love it. It was incredible. You know, I'm right along with you in terms of transparency, Mm. but um, yeah, it is kind of heartbreaking. I think for all of the styles to look maybe at your partner and go, honey, you don't have to regulate and be alone or do that. You could come sit with me and I could have my hand on your arm or just sit and read next to each other. And because it's a little heartbreaking to look at that style as well as for the person who identifies more with avoidant to look at their partner. If they have the partner with anxious ambivalent to want to say, honey, it's okay to relax. Um, that I don't have to give you meaning that you exist even if I'm not giving you that. It's almost like wanting that for the partner to 
really recognize their own inner beauty that you can identify and come back to a deeper sense of yourself. And that's of course, part of the therapy for anxious ambivalent is to come back to a very deep sense and connection with their body. So I do somatic work, Carmen, I don't think I even mentioned too much, but the answer to a lot of this is about somatic body-based healing strategies, which you of course integrate in your, your therapies. Uh, and I do, but, you know, helping a person with anxious ambivalent feel their feet, feel their core and ride the waves of the, that dysregulation, but have somebody therapeutically helping them learn how to do that and realize for them, oh, my body can do that. Mm-hmm. And what I crave is for somebody to do it for me. But now with a therapist here, I realize my body's beginning the wave on its own. It's beginning that wave of grief or that wave of intensity. But as I stay with it and track it in my body, it quiets and I feel quiet. And that is a miracle Mm -hmm. that you are in a living organism. You know, we are in these living organisms and to understand that partly of where I think our conversation will go after I talk to the, about the next one is really uh, more of that aspect of deep ecology and the topic that you're bringing to your listeners right now, but that we are in living organisms that have billions of years of evolutionary wisdom. The one thing that I learned 20 years ago with my SE somatic experiencing uh, professors and teachers that I was taking from, they kept emphasizing trust the body, go with the body, follow it. And I, it was such a, it's like a tracker, you know, when you're outside and you're trying to track, um, you know, a scat or whatever in the woods, it is just like that inside. But that, that eloquent ability to track these very fine, subtle discrete experiences and for the anxious ambivalent especially mm-hmm. to realize oh my god my body's settling on my own can be such a relief mm-hmm. for them to get that idea and that concept that they don't need the other person to settle them that they can settle themselves is really tremendous you know a tremendous gift mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and then they're able to experience that state of resting in a state of well-being with someone else after that (laughs) instead of the other person's presence actually triggering so much anxiety over need or potential loss it's like Mm -hmm. oh i settle in myself and i can now be settled with you and this is actually what i wanted so beautiful when it works yeah (laughs) it's so incredible you know it's such a sweet healing for all the styles um you know, there's such a sweetness as the healing occurs. Mm-hmm. So that, what's uh, the last yeah. style that you want to share with um, me? Yeah, Carmen, this is a style that brings in, you know, my, my skill base as a trauma therapist. I'm a PT, PTSD specialist, trauma specialist. And um, this style has a lot more to do uh, with abject abuse and very frightening experiences in childhood. It develops. Uh, in childhood where um, the child actually isn't just experiencing misattunement emotionally or they're not experiencing 
unpredictability and that kind of coming and going of emotional attunement, but where the experiences are now chaotic without predictability at all and are as a result of either true mental health uh, disorders in the parent or extreme states of uh, fright and panic and anxiety or rage that the parent is experiencing and not predictably from what a child does. For instance, if a child knocks down their blocks five times, nothing happens, but in a frightening experience for this style, when a parent is already in a, a very disorganized state internally and the child makes the noise and then the parent screams that the child runs over jerks a child off the floor, you know, these frightening, very, very abrupt, very quick change state changes that are not related to the child's behavior, but are chaotically experienced. And we call this style the disorganized, disoriented, because it's very disorienting for a child. Children like to have predictability, and they learn how to behave in a household by pattern making. You know, they learn that mommy always gets mad when I track in mud. So unless I really want to get her goat, I'm not going to track in mud. You know, mom goes bonkers when I do or, you know, (laughs) but with this style, the last style, uh, we see it, you know, in families where a parent has a diagnosable disorder like borderline personality disorder or bipolar that's untreated uh, or their own states of extreme stress and PTSD. So, um, could it also be that they, I'm just thinking about the listeners who might not be able to cast back and diagnose what it was because maybe it was intergenerational or something like that, but their parent could have been a, you know, an angry alcoholic. So there's some alcoholics who are just kind of, uh, happy and, uh, not present, but there are some that have this unpredictable. So if there's, or maybe they don't have an addiction, but they have anger. That's right. Issues. That's exactly right. And things that, that we those, I think normalize culturally. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I had an you know angry, drinky dad who had a temper, or yeah. or it could be sometimes there's even more taboo. I think if your mother was angry and violent, okay. so she has the public facing persona mm-hmm. of people like loving her. She's a respectable member of society, but then privately, you know, could could get out mm-hmm. the wooden spoon or the belt too much. That kind right. of right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're too really much. I mean, on. at all. Sorry. At all. Well, it's too much of a time. Um, but the idea that these kids can't uh, go to the parent because the parent themselves become frightening. So the parent becomes the threat. And so in terms of attachment, if we're hardwired to attach and go toward, you think about, you know, the strange study going back there again. So here's a parent walking in with a child with this style. They put the child down, there are toys in the room. The parents cued, now go out of the room for a few moments. The parent closes the door. The baby still cries. They're distressed. But upon reunion, what happens with this pattern is that the child tries to approach the parent, but actually trips themselves and you see the child fall. Or the child will actually, instead of as they're approaching the parent, they'll turn around and try to back up toward the parent. But the child becomes disoriented and physiologically disorganized as they try to land and approach the parent because enough of the time 
more than 70% of the time, the parent has been extremely frightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I'm just having a link linkage made then. So mm-hmm. for very small children who are quote unquote accident prone, yeah, uh, who have a yep. lot of, you know, um, yep. fractures or falling off monkey bars or, or those kinds of things. Do you see a relationship there? Well, I'll tell you a story that a couple of years ago, I was working with a family that the mom was diagnosed with borderline personality. And that meant that she had been raised, she had developmental trauma, in other words, and she had been raised with a lot of very frightening things. And she wasn't sure she could even be a parent when she got pregnant. She admitted that, was not sure at all that that was going to be something she could even handle or do. But when the baby, the parents were not actually together and the child had a very secure attachment with the father figure. Uh, But the mom, when she was around her, she would fall a lot. The baby would fall a lot around the mother who... Yeah, age three. At, at age three was falling a lot. And we knew that that was uh, when, when the, you know, Dan Siegel in his work, he talks about, you know, using the hand as the brain. So the brain stem, the midbrain, and then the neocortex. But in fear, the top of the brain pops off with that amygdala fright response. Well, this parent had been frightening enough, apparently, that the child, every time she got around her, because of the mother's high states of disorganization and dysregulation, the child would stumble and fall a lot. And so There's we were a really physiological thing there where it just yeah. gets very disorienting in the brain and the yeah. balance goes off and, well, and different yeah. things go off. Am I getting yeah. you? Well, let's, let's kind of step into now a little bit, which I think will lead us to our important topic of the day. But um, if you think about how we're hardwired in fight and flight, so if we have enough activation, um, let's say somebody's arguing with us, but then it goes bad, you know, just in an ordinary situation, we are feeling our own bodies charge up with a sympathetic nervous system to fight or to flee. Babies don't have those options because they can't leave. They're 100% dependent. So that third option of freeze immobility begins to happen. And so when we're talking about falling and tripping, we're really talking about aspects of freeze relationally as proximity occurs. This, you know, closer you get to this adult that's been very frightening, the closer you're getting the more the pattern keeps happening. It's a learned pattern. It's an experience-based brain. Brain That is not the pattern she had with her father, but with the one parent who had such a difficult time. She was easily, uh, she would go into fits like real splitting Mm. of the brain and real splitting emotionally, uh, real frightening state changes. So that baby was going with proximity into immobility freeze. So when you think about uh, the attachment, even though that was the mother, we're hardwired to attach, but the parent, the child couldn't really approach the mother without dissociating and going into freeze immobility, mm. losing legs, you know, the, the dissociative process of 
mm-hmm. get out of the body and uh, into dissociated states. And I think I just want to say to the listeners, many listeners now will have a memory of one thing or another right now. Mm-hmm. Let's pause for a moment, Carmen, mm-hmm. and just feel the, um, the reality of it. Um, and then just feel your body and feel the possibility of regulation with safety. That these state changes can be integrated and they can regulate and come down. It's very upsetting to hear about this news. It's very, you know, I'm used to teaching it, but I also am very aware of the impact of my words on listeners. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Slowing it down so it can be assimilated. Yeah, because I think we all have, we call it kind of incidental or um, discrete occasions of this disorganized style. Many, many, many people have like a face of their childhood where things went bad, you know, the house burned down or dad lost his job and mother went to work and you were raised by an abusive neighboring babysitter. These things happen to all of us. I want to bring compassion uh, and remember that um, the nervous system is infinitely uh, biologically able to navigate these things. Animals in the wild don't show trauma. And so I want to just say that you too are an animal and we need to rewild you (laughs) so that you can come out and have more resiliency. We want to rewild your listeners. I want to rewild myself. I'm, you know, always working the edge of how to rewild, really, to come back to the animal body. Thank you. So now that we all have an overview, a basic overview of attachment, what it is and our styles. What do you think is relevant about attachment when it comes to living in the times that we do, you know, particularly in terms of all the stress um, that we can feel about climate chaos and economic precarity and social change? How is attachment relevant to that? Isn't it just completely relevant? And doesn't it say a lot about why we have such high opiate addiction? Mm -hmm. People are in pain. There's great suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole topic of your series right now is on both outrage and grief. Mm -hmm. The most important aspect that I could ever say is that, you know, we need safe places to go together and share these experiences together without crosstalk, but in groups of 10 to 20 with safe holders of the environment like yourself or myself. And we of course need our own groups that people are holding for us, but we need safety to come back and be able to tell the truth about what is happening Many people are, as you know, Carmen, uh, with, I know you know this with great frustration, are blind to it right now. There's a whole huge amount of the population, not so much in Europe, it seems like, 
and other parts of the world, it seems like they have their eyes wider open. But, um, you know, our country, it's taken us to this point to be able to, for any, any good percentage of us to be able to open up and wide, widely see, my God, this is, we're on the brink of disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you say that we're hardwired though for collaboration and cooperation and, and, yeah. and that seems relevant to those holding containers. So how do you see evolutionary biology as helpful? Maybe you could define that and, and remind us what's important to remember during yeah. these times and these hardwired bodies that are responding so quickly to stress and the survival system is like, you know, on a hair trigger <laughs> right now. Can you talk a little bit about the evolutionary neurobiology? Yeah. So if we're hardwired and we have these things called mirror neurons. So for instance, right now you and I are, we're activated, but we're talking. And so we're moving the energy, we're connecting. And so it's actually quite dynamic. You know, I I feel that between you and I. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what we want is to stay on that edge of where we're able to share and, and talk realistically together but keep working toward that feeling of being heard or connecting. Um, So right now, you know, if we listen a lot to the news or read a lot, some of us are compulsive about not wanting to miss anything. And I admit that I'm one of those, you know, I, I will read articles and then realize I'm getting overwhelmed. And I think that's one of the things to know about neurobiology is to begin recognizing when you begin feeling overwhelmed. Right now, we're not at the place where we're all running down the road (laughs) with our hair on fire. We're not, well, actually, some of us are in California Mm. on the West Coast. There's a bunch of us that are running down the road with their hair on fire, Mm -hmm. literally. You know, and then there are people in Florida that are running down the road with their, you know, lungs on fire Mm -hmm. because of the red tide. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those of us that are witnessing that, it's very activating and very disturbing. And I think one, I'll just mention one of the people I've followed for years, and I know you have too, is Joanna Macy, Mm -hmm. the, you know, one of our, grandmothers of deep ecology and what she had termed it some years ago as the great turning where it was getting to the point where it wasn't looking like we could turn back. Um, She calls it going toward midnight. That term going headed toward midnight is referenced in a lot of different um, topics, but you know, we we're approaching this moment Uh, Some of us, you know, are in it right now. And the great uh, wave of humanity that's going to, that's moving on earth right now because of these uh, ecological disasters, we have the human flow happening. There's large masses of humanity moving. And, um, you know, when we think about this, you know, just for me right now, I just feel the grief of 
the living on earth at a time when this is true. You know, it's, it's tremendously moving. And what's important is to have the capacity to grieve and not perhaps do it alone, but to do it together. And also rage and outrage in a good way helps us keep mobilized in the joints. It moves us toward fight and flight. But if we stay too long in that, we may be ignoring the deeper tone of grief. And the grief brings it into the heart. It brings it into the humanity of what we don't want to lose, what we realize we are deeply a part of the earth. The earth is the larger living body. We're like a cell of that. And if our mother, if our, you know, if, if the basis of our existence is suffering, we too are going to be suffering. And I think Joanna uh, Macy, I'm going to send you an article that I really like. That's um, I think on truthout.org. Do you like that website? Mm -hmm, yeah. um, there's a really good article by a reporter that she had been very, very affected by, I think it was just three months on the front line in Iraq and came back unbelievably traumatized as a reporter. These people that are reporting the news, we want to protect them. We want to give them our great respect and help them because they're trying to report this stuff, whether they're in Syria or wherever. But Joanna Macy in this article is quoted as saying, um, I'll read this. Uh, she says that this idea that we can't cope with grief or rage that we go into a blindness or denial and that the refusing to feel pain and to numb from what is happening leads us to this terrible tragic existence called apathy and that the root meaning of the word apathy is to refuse to suffer and if we are refusing to suffer right now by taking opiates having extreme sex addiction, workaholism. You know that that will lead us further into this decline relationally. And that we have the one message I wanted to say to, the, to your listeners is that we want to gain the capacity to learn how to grieve together. And how to be heard and get in groups and communities to form the uh, community groups in which people gather and sit together and share their grief. You know, Diana or uh, Joanna Macy had the uh, she she developed those circles. I forget what she called them. The, the work to reconnects, and I can't the, remember the the work to reconnect. And I think they were large groups, and probably I've heard people report that was so overwhelming but what she and I think that my style is more small you know my style is more groups of 20 to 30 at the most but um, 
And then if I'm regulating everybody, we, we are all on board together. But what we learned, what Joanna Macy in this article talks about, what I know about from teaching trauma healing workshops and attachment workshops is that when people have a chance to share and feel, that experience, because of the nervous system and the neurobiology, it doesn't last forever. If they actually stay on it and stay with the body, there is a rise and a fall and a, a, a relaxation and a coming back together. And what we can find is that we can actually come back together as a collective, as a group. And that, if I have anything to tell your listeners, that's what I hope for all of us. That's what I want in my life. That's what I want in your lives is a way, you know, preparedness is, is one aspect of it. And then this sort of resiliency within your body and collectively with your small groups, learning how to do this together over and over and even doing it now. That's what I would call preparedness, learning how to do it now because we're going to need this muscle really much more, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. How much of your client's stress and anxiety symptoms do you believe are environmentally or culturally related? Like they might come in having a relational problem, but I'm curious how much you kind of step back and you're, you are seeing the larger constellation. How much do you think, I, I know we can't exactly quantify, but, and maybe I, I'm also curious, have you noticed a, a spike or increase in a, in the last couple years or has it been gradual? What are you noticing generally when you kind of cast a wider net to your practice and at, on the whole? And, you know, my population, Carmen, the people that come to me for treatment have PTSD. And so I'm seeing a certain group of population. Also, they're ones that want to be back in the body and believe in the work. They don't come to me if they think that the head is the way to go or, right. you know, that they're, they're really not in my practice. But this group, you know, they know I have an open door policy that basically they can come and go as they need. But certainly I would say, uh, I'll, I'll speak for myself that after the last U.S. election, um, there was a whole, for me, a whole big turning internally of increased stress reaction. And um, I noticed that right away that it triggers some huge things in terms of patriarchal uh, rule and a denial of the, the feminine and a denial, you know, in a large sense, the feminine, which is earth, emotions, connection, children, education, families, health, well-being, all of that is included. And um, so that, you know, I think that, that my own activation got up really high, but then I saw a lot of people coming back into my practice. I try nowadays in my practice, I actually try to name it. And because sometimes what we say is we, call, we say name it and claim it. This is something that, you know, your listeners can think about that if it's floating around inside and you vaguely know it, if you name it out loud, oftentimes your nervous system is going to downregulate. So you name it and claim it. And I have been more, not every hour, but more bringing into people's awareness of how, how much is this related to what you're seeing 
mm-hmm. on the news or environmentally, what you're worried about your children, you know, mm-hmm. how are you doing with that? It's quite stressful times. These are extraordinary times. The more we deny it, the worse. And I salute you, Carmen, for being on the edge, you know, with participating in that conference recently. of Attending the threshold. Mm -hmm. Attending the threshold, being on the edge of saying, giving people a way to talk about this stuff. I really respect that. Thank you. What else do you think helps people? There's the naming and claiming. There's, yeah. there's grieving and togetherness without the crosstalk. I want to like lift that up again, that it's about being seen and, yeah. and being, being a good witness. Sorry. Being safe in a group mm-hmm. to share. Yeah. What else helps us in terms of our personal, you know, yeah. for listeners who are like, but what can I do right now? <laughs> Patty, what can yeah. I do? <laughs> I think, um, You know, if I were your listeners, I'd really start reading some of these really great pieces of literature on intervenedness. Intervenedness. Intervenedness and interpersonal neurobiology. And if you just Google search those words, you're going to find a lot of information about it. Um, Sometimes we get logged into, you know, what has, uh, you know, what has the president of the United States, 45, what, What's he decided to do today? And I want to highlight, like today he called off the military parade, which was going to be $94 million. And I was like, just feeling the hallelujah moment that we didn't have that nonsense. If we give that money, if we do anything for veterans, give it to them for health and well-being, for mindfulness training and embodiment and healing of trauma without a lot of judgment, which the military at some level is known to do, which, you know, there's a payoff and a benefit to not claiming that you have trauma mm. for, for veterans returning from active duty. So anyway, um, but, you know, I think that, that being able to read the right material and really focus on, get your mind oriented, they called it positive psychology, but I don't particularly like that term in the reference that we're talking about, but I think the idea that we want to pendulate, that if we get riveted on the negative, we know we're entering fixity and immobility. So we want to pendulate our mind and our mind will come to the negative and we want to be able to come back to what is good. And these tiny moments, I think I'm particularly adept because I used to have PTSD myself. You know, that's how I entered in a, in not totally, but somewhat entered Peter Levine's training was I wanted healing from my own extreme PTSD that I was experiencing back in the late nineties, mid nineties. And I wanted healing and I got healing. It was wonderful. But that program of pendulation of realizing you want to move your mind to this positive, small, minute, positive, exquisite moment or relationship, or experience, or location, if you can focus on it, your body is going to downregulate, and your body's going to start relaxing and discharging. You want to learn how to do that, and that's part of the goodness of, uh, the only reason it works is that we're built to to pendulate. Our, our nervous systems are already that way. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say is learning more about interpersonal neurobiology, Mm-hmm. Uh, picking up some of those articles and readings and then also learning a skill base about utilizing that awareness 
uh, tool yeah. of capturing your awareness and moving it around and realizing your body's doing something because your mind is moving mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. staying put. And it's hard, you know, when we get with PTSD, it's very hard to lasso the mind, but we want to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. Now it's a really good time, you know. Yeah, start now and avoid the rush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So how would you say attachment styles show up in a person's spiritual life too? Like we're talking about the relational field with the living beings, but what, what about with the unseen realms? I love, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm so uh, grateful and I, and I, I courted you to be my mentor because I thought, oh yeah, rewilding the self. And she understands that sometimes I, sometimes only tree nation can get me. And sometimes it's, you know, ancestors from the old, 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 old times. And, and so can you talk a little bit just about how you think um, attachment and our spiritual lives are, are playing with each other, dancing with each other a bit? That's perfect, Carmen, because that's the one thing that I also, I kind of hold it privately and quietly to myself. You know, you saw it in me, I see it in you, but I actually, I don't teach a lot about it because I think it promotes something that maybe is activating for people who've had wounds in religion and in churches. What we're talking about has nothing to do with religion and churches. Uh, It really is that essence of, the wonderment of being and that there is a way that healing and being with oneself, we can go into whole other realms of awareness and bring that in. And it absolutely, for me, I could never have healed the way that I healed if I had not had this true belief that it was possible and that there were realms that were holding that possibility for me and that I could access those unseen, unknowable, invisible realms that I was able to access that. And for me, that is such a a part of me and the way that I am a therapist. It's part of me as the way I am as a human. And that I feel that um, it's this hidden, hidden world um, that, you know, when I'm working one-on-one, we are accessing it a lot and we're in there and it comes through in, in the vision of the human or the person I'm working with. It may come through imagery of, um, their own deep knowing, organic, instinctual, deep knowing that arises. And then we're with that and that becomes their own true anchor for their healing experience. And um, hopefully it's not too esoteric for your listeners, but I really do believe uh, over here in the Southeast, you know, there's a whole belief about plant spirit medicine that is deep in the woods of Appalachia. There is a, a deep knowing of Paralandra or soilless gardens that accessing nature beings and the invisible world that we can uh, deeply connect to. And if we connect to it, that it, the help and the assistance is poured in to us. And that's just in a very natural world. I know when I bought the cabin here, the reason I did was I walked up to the front porch and there's this huge giant gentleman pine out here 
that has such a presence that, you know, sometimes I feel shy if I walk in front of him and I'm like <laughs> naked because I feel like, oh, I'm naked and he's seeing me, you know, because his presence is so distinct. You know, he's just huge, beautiful, gorgeous being out front. So I really, I know I'm a tree person. Mm -hmm. I consider myself a tree person. I also consider myself part of the deer clan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that these worlds that we walk in, Carmen, are very private in a way. But there's a whole group of us that are cutting edge people, I think, that are really rewilding and really saying, let's not do therapy in, in a one-on-one -on -one in our offices. Let's go out and see what happens when we are out there because, you know, that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? I love that you all take, you know, your, your retreats uh, like you and, and Ruben just got back from. Yeah. from quest mm -hmm. from quest retreats yeah mm -hmm. thank you thanks yeah. thank you for sharing that i appreciate letting us have a little glimpse and introducing us to your pine gentleman out, out front <laughs> someday i hope to meet him so how are you personally then patty as a, as a very experienced therapist but also as a citizen and as a uh you know a member who is an elder and becoming an ancestor you know how are you coping with grief and rage? What are your sort of favorite yeah. things you're reaching to these days? Yeah, I have forever been a crier. So I wasn't one of those that didn't cry. And so I rely on tears. It's not the only thing, though, because if I cry too much, it will immobilize me and take the potency out of mobility. And so I want to stay on the edge of both feeling my heart and my grief, uh, which we talk, talked about and touched in personally together. I could feel us working with it as I was talking about 10 minutes, 15 minutes ago. Uh, but I want to work with that. But I also want to stay on the edge of my outrage. So I want my mobility to be that I do write my letters and I do make my phone calls. And you know how I introduce myself. I say, look, I'm 66 years old. I'm a silverback. I've been a therapist a long time and I've seen, I've treated a lot of people. I've been in public schools and agencies, private practice. I'm going to tell you what I think about this law that you're supporting. And I say it just like that because I want to represent who I am. Because the, I, I do believe that in a way, in a way, and maybe this is from something I heard from a spiritual teacher I believe in, but he said Western women are going to be the turning point of our next big spiritual journey and change on earth. But I believe that you have to represent yourself personally to these Congress people. And I'm very active about that. So I work with believing that my grief is important for my humanity, but my outrage has to be modulated and has to be brought into my body toward action. And that uh, writing, you know, like your, your essays that you post on Medium, I think are very much a result of your outrage coming into fruition. And I want all your listeners to take time, maybe this weekend, to think about what does your outrage lead you to do actively proactively not reactively proactively for good and change 
Thank you so much for everything that you've shared, uh, Patty, everything that you've taught me. I'm so thrilled that we can wow. just take like a tiny, teeny, tiny fraction of it and share it with everyone else. And I, I love that people can hear your voice and hear your laugh and hear your, your tears and your tenderness as you're yeah. really connecting. It's like a, a gift. I've, I've wanted to share the gift of Patty with my listeners for a long time. So thank you for agreeing. I really appreciate you being oh, here. Thank you, Carmen, so much. It was, it was really very meaningful and very touching and a lot of fun. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I could listen to Patty talk for hours and days. And in fact, I, I have done so. Maybe you're curious about what is the impact of having more Patty in your life? Well, I'd like to welcome back to the show my husband, Ruben Anderson, who can probably describe uh, uh, the before and after Patty was in Carmen's life. So uh, back for another Rubenation is my man, Ruben Anderson. Hello. What did you think uh, now that you've had a chance to, you've heard the name Patty. You've heard me talk so many times about, I need to talk to Patty. This is what Patty says. Uh, what was it like listening to Patty's voice tell you the things that I said before? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, what a pleasure of a conversation to listen to. So amazing. Just, yeah, her her voice and her, uh, you know, she, her voice has the carriage of deep knowledge. And so it's just like you can see her voice walking with great, confidence like it's, it's just and, it's and incredible care too uh-huh. yeah, yeah she's so full of care and love and mm-hmm. it's it you can hear it in my voice as i'm speaking with <laughs> yeah. her that i'm like getting yeah. all melty she's doing yeah. it all the time uh-huh. she's doing attachment and attunement and presencing a secure base all mm-hmm. the time so I, I feel shameless when i say like mm-hmm. i love her mm-hmm. and uh it's a very uh, healing relationship mm-hmm. to be well, with somebody I haven't who been, I haven't been in the room with her, so I haven't experienced that. I, I, I 100% believe it's amazing. Um, but she also, there's just so much interesting knowledge mm-hmm. that, yeah, I would, I would happily spend days just listening to her kind of explain connections and talk about history of research and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Just amazing. When she said she led with the identity of elder, mm-hmm. I was like, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. that fits. Yeah. And then she talked about being a wild healer in the woods in a log cabin. And I was like, Carmen, how did you find this woman? <laughs> like, no. I, I kind of expected her just to be a nice middle-aged lady. <laughs> but I found the best. <laughs> you found the found wild the healer in the woods. for me yeah. ever. Yeah, and then, and then later she said, you two are an animal and we want to rewild you. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you really found your, your mentor here. Mm-hmm. I, I love that she said uh, she worked with children on the floor. was this little phrase she had. And it's just she uses a, that a lot. Right. She, she describes her work as uh-huh. that kinesthetic, that physical. Right. I was on the floor on with the floor. babies and yeah. their parents. Yeah. It, it, I kind of reacted to it uh, just as someone describing their work, you know, like a bus driver might describe, I, I don't know what, or, you know, or, or a bricklayer might <laughs> right. describe something, you know, it was just like, it gives such kind of a physical sense of how she, what she does in mm. her, in her work. So that was really neat. Yeah, I'm really glad I got to to share her with you. And mm-hmm. then in terms of um, 
connecting the dots to say why we're gathering at Hollyhock or why mm-hmm. I wanted to have her on to talk about attachment and wh- and why I feel this is so uh, critical in mm-hmm. terms of a, um, a life skill mm-hmm. that we need to start to nail down yeah. pretty quick. We have to be able to become well-practiced and, um, and experienced with as the world continues mm-hmm. its slow decline to deindustrialization <laughs> and the persistent precarity and the high stress. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I felt like Patty could just connect all the dots mm-hmm. really well for me. Did you feel like that was connected? Yeah, I didn't feel like she was trying to qualify there. Like I thought she was pretty assertive that this was a really critical skill mm-hmm. in times of ever increasing tension. So yeah, it was a, uh, yeah, I thought she was very clear about that. And again, it was like, where did you find this woman? <laughs> <laughs> where did I find the perfect yeah. person? God gave her to me. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Uh, you, you said that Ruben can attest to the before and after of Carmen, you know, uh, your work with, with Patty. Um, and with Diane Poolheller, you know, when you went for the training, it was like, I, 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 uh, I think of it almost as being two marriages, you know, that there was, it's, it was transformative in how you treated me and in how, you know, and kind of setting me also on new work, uh, and kind of new explorations in my own healing, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, it's really been, yeah, it's, it's been absolutely pivotal in both our lives and in our relationship. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Patty. Thank you, Patty. <laughs> so yeah, and a very complimentary uh, conversation to the episode released a, a couple episodes prior uh, where uh, I was talking with Matthew Remsky mm-hmm. about attachment and high demand groups and community. Mm-hmm. So it, I just found it uh, so lovely. I, mm-hmm. I feel like if you follow the thread of community and mm-hmm. how we be together mm-hmm. in times of persistent precarity so, and collapse, the, these were very complimentary mm-hmm. conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I didn't follow the thread of community. I followed the thread of compassion, which I brought up with Matthew Remsky again. But let me dial that back a little bit because there, bef- I, I wrote down Matthew Remsky. Uh, but before that, I want to set it up a bit. So the thing that uh, twigged me is that she talked about videos of babies without sound. And so, you know, right from the beginning of our relationship over nine years ago now, uh, we noticed one of the things that, that we loved and probably drew us together is that we came at, we had this middle ground between us and we were each exploring different, uh, we were each exploring different areas that had this great commonality or crossover around uh environmental like uh, no, around sustainability no more around like the subconscious so Ooh, around the subconscious yeah. mm-hmm. um so that was that's always been kind of a thread through our relationship and so again um can i contextualize that even yeah. more you were coming at it from a behavior change perspective mm-hmm. yeah. with uh municipal systems systems yeah. of policy and government i was coming at the subconscious uh, from a more spiritual perspective mm-hmm. as you know how can we come to know that of God within or mm-hmm. spirit or ourselves more through um, relaxation and very focusing exercises and trance journeys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so you were looking at trance journeys and I was wondering if we could hypnotize people to recycle. Right. <laughs> you know? And the common ground is this sort of like the depth of the subconscious and what, uh, how do people behave? What is our motivations? Where are our deeper journeys? 
Um, so yeah, we, we found this, this common ground in the middle. Um, but one of the things that as I was researching uh, behavior, uh, there was a standout book called Honest Signals, uh, mm. which was written by a professor at MIT called Sandy Penland. Um, and what they did was they um, did a bunch of recordings. <laughs> they, they hacked cell phones so that they could record all sound and all video 360 degrees. And they could map what was happening around people when people made behavioral choices. And so then they could start to pinpoint the behavioral triggers, the thing that would actually cause the behavior instead of the reason the person gives for the behavior, which are usually two totally different things. Uh, but another example I gave in there was of showing clips of teachers teaching to students. So they would show a clip of a teacher at the front of a class, 30 seconds long with no sound. So th this is the baby connection, right? And they found with 80% accuracy that uh, people watching this video would rate the teacher, like give the teacher sort of a teacher's performance review, 80% accuracy as to the actual teacher review they got at the end of the semester. Wow. So four months of teaching students gets you this teacher rating. <laughs> 30 seconds of watching you teach with no sound gets you almost the same teacher rating. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so that like that was speaking to uh, sort of the depth of our communication. Um, mm -hmm. uh, well, and what Patty called, she said, attunement is a nonverbal world. Uh-huh, yeah. What a great line. Yeah, that really twigged me. And it started me thinking about hardwired, which again she mentioned later on. It's like, she's like, we are hardwired to do this. Uh, you know, I've had this sort of uh, theory, my behavioral theory I call compassionate systems, but the root of that is, is compassion, uh, is that humans are, are, are good at what we do. Um, and so we're, we're trustable, I guess, you know, like, and so she, I'm having a hard time articulating it, but she spoke of it as being, we've been evolving like Organisms have been on this planet for billions of years and mammals for millions of years and humans for a hundred thousand years or whatever, right? So we've been evolving to to be successful. We've been evolving to work. If we didn't work, we would have died out. So we actually work as organisms, but we're treated as broken all mm. the time. So it's like you are you are a broken thing. You need drugs. You are a broken thing. You need, you know, etc. Right? Um, and she just really enforced this kind of sense that I have that we're actually pretty good at this. Like we're a fully functioning organism. What's broken is our context, you know, is our society, is our economic system. Like all these things are driving us away from contact with our, with our family, away from healthy parents who carry us and attach with us, you know? And so we end up, uh, medicating or retreating you know she talked about opiate addiction a lot or various other addictions we end up retreating into worlds to cope um, I, I was actually just speaking of this earlier today and we have a lot of very nasty narratives around that retreat that people are apathetic they're lazy they're stupid um, and actually I, I think what's needed is the loving the compassionate approach that no we're just hurting mm -hmm. so that was a huge chunk of listening to her for me was just hearing her keep on plugging pieces into this really loving worldview mm -hmm. of, uh, of humans and humans and children and babies and stuff. And what it means to be alive in a time 
when this is true. When mm-hmm. she said that, 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 that this great uh, flow of humanity, I was thinking at that time of the loss of species, the collapse of habitats, all of this. It's like mm-hmm. the implications of what it means to be alive at a time when all of this is true. Mm-hmm. means we have to be very gentle with our nervous systems and mm-hmm. we have to really focus on uh, helping create some containers, very intentional containers, mm-hmm. so that people can feel safe and secure mm-hmm. and seen and soothed. And and that I think that's why, you know, that we were invited to come to Hollyhock because we're we're willing to say, mm-hmm. we're gonna create this container and it's specifically about the most unmanageable, ungraspable, unknowable things mm-hmm. that we believe you are true we mm-hmm. know are true and are not about you and you're not broken and you're not failing to mm-hmm. thrive you know and, mm-hmm. and um yeah. yeah i think patty does a great job of articulating all the the whys and the neurobiology of why it's important mm-hmm. that we do these gatherings yeah i i think towards the end there you know she had this part where she talked about uh tracking stags and i was like no no she does... said scat like, oh, scat. scat. Oh, like, oh, I thought she like said stag. Poo. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, oh, I thought she said stag. And then I was like, does Patty hunt? But And then later she said she considered herself part of the deer clan. So mm-hmm. that, was, that made sense. Um, but towards the end there, it seems almost like there's a whole other episode. Uh, she talked about her relationship with this gentleman pine tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know. And, and again, the gentleman uh, pine. I'm yeah. trying to be a little bit modest around. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and again, the deer. Um we, we talk about attachment as being the human relational field, you know, like children to parents and all these examples of kind of how uh, easily uh, attachment can be wounded um, between parents and children. Um, and I think she was like really building to the point there to talk about our attachment to trees, mm-hmm. our attachment to rivers, our attachment to birds. Uh, certainly, you know, there's a whole field of eco-psychology that is looking at that and finding these wounds. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, last week, there's this, for the past three weeks, essentially, there's been this outpouring of grief over this orca mother carrying her dead calf mm-hmm. for a thousand miles over 17 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are not, we are not looking at that as just like some wind-up robotic automaton, mm-hmm. right? We are attached to this creature Mm -hmm. and it's everything right in us Uh wanting everything right we should be attached we should be grieving together Mm -hmm. over these things Mm -hmm. and uh it's sad that we have to um make such an effort to take our therapy out of the office and (laughs) out into the natural world it's sad that we have to create really specific intentional containers to gather together in groups of 20 and Mm -hmm. go to the natural world and really connect with spirits of place Um, and the healing of it is finding our way back to our humanity again finding our way back to our wholeness again Mm -hmm. which she said i can i can settle myself and then i can be with you and that is a miracle Mm. <laughs> well, I can see why you love her. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, if you want to come and hang out with Ruben and I on Cortez Island at Hollyhock Lifelong Learning Center this fall, uh, you should go to my website 
and uh, you should register soon because uh, the, the deadline's going to come up at the end of August and if we don't meet a minimum we're not going to go uh, and uh, we're not quite there yet so if you're interested don't delay anymore you should uh, go to hollyhawk.ca or go to my website c-a-r-m-e-n-s-p-a-g-n-o-l-a until next time take care